The first trial of the former officers charged in the killing of George Floyd is underway. Police officers are rarely prosecuted in such cases, and the world will be watching. The Minnesota Public Radio newsroom, which has followed this case in detail from the beginning, will bring listeners updates on this monumental trial and the consequences it holds for the city and the country. Listen to In Front of Our Eyes wherever you listen to podcasts. A warning to listeners, this podcast contains strong language. I'm John Collins. And I'm Tracy Mumford. And this is 74 Seconds. So Reham is still in court as we speak. She'll be jumping in with us when she gets back. Uh, This whole week has been jury selection. Yeah, we're still in the depths of this jury selection. It's taking longer than the judge wanted, but spending a week on it can be typical for this kind of high-profile case. And John, you've been in the courtroom this week. You've watched some of this jury selection happening. Put me in the jurors' shoes. What has this week been like for them? Well, they're being brought into the courtroom as individuals, and they're asked this long series of questions. Some of the questions are really personal and invasive, and they have to answer them in a room full of reporters and lawyers. All right, so so give me some of these questions that you've been hearing in court this week. Um, and everyone listening, just think about how you would answer these. Again, in this room full of reporters and lawyers. John, what have they been asking? What's your personality? Hmm. How would your spouse describe you? How would your spouse describe you? Right. Do you have a problem with African Americans? So they are getting into these racial questions. What's your experience with police? So that's a question that you're going to get a lot of different responses to, and you've heard a lot of different responses to in the courtroom, right? Yeah, it's all over the place from when they respond to someone's car being broken into to, you know, a woman was pepper sprayed by police. So these answers that we've all just thought about, about how we would answer these questions, that's what's shaping who is going to end up on the jury for this historic case. That's right. And people's answers, like I said, have been really personal. People have talked about abuse difficult family situations, and the exact details of when they got a DUI. And on the other hand, they're getting these kind of like superficial questions, right, about like how often do you read the news? Uh, And just only a handful of people so far have said that they read the newspaper, right? That's right. And one woman said that she only reads People magazine and she had never heard about the Philando Castile case. That's interesting to kind of get the insight into some of these prospective jurors. Right. So dealing with the jury selection progress this week, uh, we are going to talk in this episode about how the system is designed and also how it works in reality. John, you and I both talked to people about this who have been behind the table, eyeing jurors, trying to figure out which way they would go in a case. Yeah, I talked to a trial consultant. She advises lawyers on strategies for picking jurors. And I talked to a defense lawyer in North Carolina who actually defended a police officer against manslaughter charges for shooting a man while on duty. Uh, what, what did your trial consultant tell you about how this should be working? So this is Diane Wiley. She works for the National Jury Project. And first off, she wants to tell people, show up when you get called for jury duty. I have people say to me, oh, tell me how, how to get out of jury service. Tell me how to get out mm-hmm. of jury duty. 
And I always say, please don't get out of jury duty. (laughs) Come on, you know, do your duty here. It's one of the few things you're asked to do besides vote. So do your jury duty. Exactly. And she said jury selection can take so long, especially in a case like this, because the judge and the attorneys need to make sure that they find jurors who can set aside anything they might have heard about the case before they got called in. Our system is based on the idea that when a person is tried, the information that they're judged on is solely to be based on what they hear in the courtroom, not what they hear in the press or from other people. So what she explained to me was that the prosecution and defense are not really picking a jury. They're unpicking a jury. In the Yanez case, they started with this pool of 50, and their job is trying to decide who has to go. And part of that for the lawyers is deciding when to use your peremptory challenges. Yeah, we should talk about this. My defense lawyer talked about this, too. Peremptory challenges are the challenges that the prosecution and defense can use to dismiss a prospective juror without cause. So they don't need to say why. They just need to say, I don't want him or her on the jury. But they only get a limited number of these peremptory challenges. Uh, In the Giannis case, the prosecution has three and the defense has five. Yeah. And so they have to decide who's worth using these challenges on. Right. You wouldn't use them on obvious ones like people who say they can't attend the whole trial or they say they've already made up their mind about the case. The judge dismisses prospective jurors like that. Right. You use your peremptory challenges on people that you want to get out of the pool because you think their presence could affect your case. So I would be thinking that people who'd had bad experiences with the police, I'd be looking at that. I would be looking at the experiences that they'd had with guns. I would be looking at experiences they'd had where they were in fear of their lives and how they responded to it. Wiley told me the biggest question in jury selection is, can someone be fair? which is a complicated, nuanced, moral question. It's also a hard question to say no to. It's very hard for people to say that they can't be fair. It's very hard. We see it all the time, and we do surveys uh, for a variety of reasons, and we'll have people say, oh, they're guilty as heck. Then you say, do you think you can be a fair juror? Oh, sure, sure. And it's because the word fair, we all think we're fair. We all think we're fair people. Okay, so the defense attorney that I talked to, he walked me through what this search for fairness actually looks like in a trial of a police officer. George Laffron is a defense attorney in North Carolina. He defended a police officer who was charged a few years ago with manslaughter after he shot and killed an unarmed black man while on duty. And Laffron told me that his team researched prospective jurors using a lot of different strategies, including social media. They go through everything they can legally find about potential jurors. And sometimes they hit gold. That happened in the case where he was defending the police officer. We actually got a juror excused for calls who would have said, if it weren't for her Facebook postings about uh, before the trial, she posted something along the lines of, today's my chance to do justice and things like that. So, and it was a, it was a, she was an African-American female and it was basically not in our favor. So has the rise of social media it's kind of opened a window for you into prospective jurors. It's the best thing ever happened to lawyers in general. I mean, people post stupid shit, stupid stuff, pardon my language. Um, Yeah, you see, they post crazy stuff. They post crazy stuff on there. Um, But, you know, it's amazing what you can do with a laptop and just having somebody's name out there. I can find out, you know, if I had your full name, I could almost find out, Tracy, 
where you lived, how much you paid for your house, are you Democrat or Republican, do you have a valid driver's license, you know, just by having your name and, you know, a little bit of information about you, not a whole lot. So you can find out a lot about a lot of people, as you know, with, with just a computer. So say you do get all that information about me, like you would get on a prospective juror. How do you decide that you want to fight for a juror or sure. strike a juror? What we did, we rated jurors one to five. Five's a keeper, one, no way they sit. Okay? So we tried to give them a rating. Let's say that we saw your, you know, your background, you know, you're a journalist, you know, you're probably a little bit liberal, probably. Again, that's just, I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to be stereotypical. But, you know, I don't probably want a liberal woman on my police jury, okay? So you may rate as a two for us. So depending on how we rated you as a juror in our, you know, office rating pool, we might try to go after you a little bit, knowing that if a judge doesn't excuse you, I'm going to excuse you. You're not going to sit on my jury no matter what. If I have a police officer shooting, and I've been representing officers in shootings for 35 years now, I want a conservative, probably Republican, juror, because they're more likely to be law and order oriented. So, so I have a question for you. Sure. So if you run out of your peremptory challenges. Ooh, that's, yeah, that's really dangerous. Yeah. What, how, what do you proceed to at that point? <laughs> There's a word I'm not going to use. It. You are effed that way. Uh, in jury selection, I was always taught as a young prosecutor. I was a DA for two years before I became a defense lawyer. Always keep one challenge for that one wild card juror. So you always try to keep one in reserve. But if you don't, you try to get the judge to excuse that juror for cause. I'd ask you questions like, Ms. Mumford, obviously you, you know, what you do is very important. You've got people depending on you. You know, if, if you're not here for six weeks, is it going to cause you? It's going to cause you a lot of financial hardship, isn't that right, ma'am? Hoping you take the bait and say, absolutely, it's going to cause me hardship, uh, and that would affect you listening to the evidence because you're worried about paying your light bill, isn't that fair? You know, then you start trying to get the juror to agree with you on all that, and hoping the judge says, okay, we're going to excuse that juror for cause. So Laffin told me that in the end, they sat a jury for the case against the officer with eight white jurors and four African-American jurors. And that manslaughter trial, it ended in a hung jury, which means they couldn't decide. It was split eight for non-guilty, four guilty. But they didn't split directly on racial lines. So race is something you can't talk enough about in the Yanez case. It's been interesting how it's been handled so far. There were no questions that were explicitly about race on the jury questionnaire. I talked to Carmen McQuitty. She's a former public defender who now works at the University of Minnesota. She told me that was a red flag for her. I told her the prosecution asked potential jurors questions like, do you have anything against Latinos? Do you have anything against African Americans? And I assume everybody said no, right? Of course. Of course they did, because he asked a question related to explicit bias, which is, people who have overtly racist views and are proud of them. You know, so we might say sort of like neo-Nazis and, you know, white supremacist movements. You would expect that that type of person would say, yeah, I don't like black people. But you and I know that most people do not operate that way. And most people don't think they have racist or white supremacist tendencies or deep-seated beliefs. Research would show otherwise. The research McQuitty is talking about is this implicit bias test from Harvard. You can actually go online and take it. We have a link on our Twitter. So what we know, what research shows, is that African Americans are absolutely more associated with violence. And in this case, that's going to be huge. 
Because while uh, Mr. Yanez is on trial, Philando Castile is also on trial. And if you have implicit bias, which we all do, we're going to be looking through a lens, unless we've explored it and tried to root it out, that blacks are already more violent. And I think the state is going to have a hard time winning this case if they have not explored this with jurors. And we have to tell you quickly, full disclosure, Carmen McQuitty is defending some people who were arrested during a protest after Philando Castile's death. Now, the issue of race in the Yanez trial goes beyond any juror's potential bias. It also goes into the way the defense and prosecution pick a jury. Right. And this gets back to peremptory challenges, which we've been talking about. Either side can use those to get a juror excused without cause, except you cannot challenge a juror based solely on race. If the prosecution or the defense looks like they're doing that to challenge jurors just on race, the other side can raise what's called a Batson challenge. It's tied to a Supreme Court case, Batson versus Kentucky. Radiolab did a great episode all about the Batson ruling and how it does and does not work in courtrooms. So you can check that out for more listening. We will put it up on our Twitter as well. Okay, so selecting a jury for the Yanez trial is going to be complicated for all the reasons we just talked about. There are a lot of possible ways this case could go once it gets started. There could be a verdict on the charges. There could be a mistrial. There could be a hung jury like Lafren's case. Yeah, we actually saw another hung jury in the case of the officer who shot Walter Scott. That was in South Carolina. You might remember there was the video of Scott running away from an officer when he was shot. And that trial, that ended in a hung jury, too. Lafren actually told me he couldn't believe that. You know, the officer shot the guy in the back running away. How in the hell that jury could hang up on that charge is beyond me. But Lafren also made a really important point about how trials against police officers are different than trials against regular citizens, especially in a manslaughter case like the one Officer Geronimo Yanez is facing. The standard of proof is not what people think it is for officers. You don't have to be right. All you have to do is be reasonable. In other words, if you're an officer and you see me reaching in for my cell phone and you reasonably think I have a gun... I may be totally unarmed. You may be wrong, but, you know, you were reasonable in your assumption. So this really stuck with me. You don't have to be right. All you have to do is be reasonable. That's what the jury, when they get seated, will have to consider. After the break, I check in with our other reporter, Reham Fashir, who is just about to get back from court. Hi, this is Hans Buto. I'm one of the producers for 74 Seconds. And I want to tell you about a podcast that you should totally be listening to. It's called Undisclosed. And since you're listening to a podcast that's all about the criminal justice system, you are going to love Undisclosed. It tells the story of Freddie Gray, who was arrested in April of 2015 for possession of a switchblade. He was put inside of a Baltimore Police Department transport van and 45 minutes later was found unconscious and not breathing with his spinal cord nearly severed. He spent a week in a coma, and then died. And his arrest had been documented with a passerby video. 
And Undisclosed has taken that case and done a nine-month investigation into the killing of Freddie Gray and turned up a ton of facts that are really interesting and you're going to really want to know about. So you can find Undisclosed, an audio boom podcast, anywhere that you get podcasts. It comes out every Monday and Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So definitely go listen to Undisclosed. All right, Reham is back with me now. She just got back from the courtroom. Reham, you've been there all week. Uh, it's nice outside. I can see right past you to where the sun is shining. How has it been being in the courtroom? It's it's a fascinating process, although it is hard to be in that courtroom all week. While it's been 70, 80 degrees, it's sunny. Um, I've been able to step out here and there. But uh, that's actually a question that came up today during jury selection, the defense attorney, one of them was asking some of the jurors, you know, you've been sitting here for three days and it's nice outside. It's Friday afternoon. So have you been resentful at all because you're here and because it's so nice out and you could be doing so many other things? Um, So that was kind of like an interesting question that they put here and there. And none of the jurors that were asked that actually said that they hated the process or anything. They were like, I have to do this. This is my civic duty. And I've been keeping myself occupied. Hmm. So through this, we've been in it all week. How close is the Yanis case to actually getting their jury seated? It's moving along. It didn't feel like it was in the beginning, but it is moving along. They started on Tuesday with a pool of 50, but they don't need to question all 50. Um, And this is where the math comes in. They need to get to a jury of 12 people with three alternates. That's 15 people. But remember when we talked earlier about those peremptory challenges, uh, the defense gets five of them and the prosecution gets three. So that's eight strikes. Eight plus 15 is 23. So they needed to narrow down the original group of 50 to 23 people to get to the next round of jury selection. And they did that today. And they were all told to come back on Monday afternoon. Okay, so they've got their list of 23 for Monday. Who is in this next round of the jury selection process? There were a a variety of people, a night nurse, an ER nurse, a construction worker, uh, a young millennial who manages a Wendy's restaurant, a retired uh, special ed teacher. There was a lifetime NRA member who was questioned as well. He was questioned for a really long time, actually, by the judge and also by the attorneys. He said he knows a lot about guns. He knows a lot about firearm training. He used to be a firearms instructor. And his son also knew Philando Castile. they knew each other from school, but they weren't close friends, but they didn't know each other. And his son told him that Philando was a good guy. Uh, that person, that juror was uh, challenged by the state. The state felt that he couldn't separate what he knew about guns and what he knew about firearms training from what he'll be able to learn during the trial. The judge, on the other hand, didn't agree with that. He decided that he believed him when he said that he could be fair and he kept him in the pool. So this seems like a complicated juror to try and decide if you're the prosecution or the defense, if he would be on your side. Are there people that have been passed into this next round of jury selection that you really aren't sure which side wanted them or which side they might, you know, potentially be an asset for? I thought that actually came up a lot during this process. People's various life experiences could go either way, could show biases either way. There was another guy who um, whose wife works as a lunch lady for the same school district that Philando Castile worked. 
at. She didn't know him, but it was the same school district. And at the same time, he has a nephew in law enforcement and his neighbor is a distant relative to Officer Yana's. So he was also passed as part of the, the pool. All right. So that's the background on some of the people who have been moved into this pool of 23 for Monday. But when you're looking at that jury pool, we knew that the original pool was really white. How is this next round looking? 21 of the 23 appear to be white and two of them appear to be black. There was a a young black man and an 18-year-old Ethiopian-American woman. And so there are no Hispanic or Latino members of this jury pool at this moment? No, there was not. And that's a question that came up um, a lot today on the prosecution side is he asked pretty much every single one of those potential jurors, what has been your interaction with people of other racial backgrounds? And are you comfortable with uh, Hispanics? Are you comfortable with African-Americans? And everybody said that they were. Okay, so how much longer is the jury selection process going to take? We're expecting it to be completed on Monday after those strikes are done. Um, After that, they can be seated for opening statements Monday afternoon. Okay, so Monday morning, they're going to try and pare down 23 to 15. Mm -hmm. And both the prosecution and the defense, that's going to be the time when they use their peremptory challenges to get rid of the people that they don't want on the jury, right? according to their perspectives. All right, so then opening arguments could happen as soon as Monday afternoon. Yes. And we'll have a whole week of testimony then. Yeah. Uh, From what we've heard already, from the types of questions that both the prosecution and the defense were asking prospective jurors, do they give any kind of window into some of the arguments that we're going to hear next week? Well, one question that came up today is marijuana. Some of the jurors were asked what they know about the effects of marijuana and how people react when they're under the influence of marijuana. The defense was mostly asking these questions because From what we know so far, they've made that an argument in pretrial motions that Philando Castile was under the influence of THC and therefore he wasn't able to respond to Officer Yanaz's orders. Are there any other windows that we have to what's coming in the trial based on what they were asking prospective jurors? Well, we know gun training is going to be a part of the trial as well. And that's something that came up um, in the questioning in this process, what people knew about gun training and permit training and that type of thing. So that's another thing that we know are probably gonna, is probably going to come up. One thing that's still hanging out there is this permit to carry question, Philando Castile's permit to carry. We don't even know if that's going to be admissible in court yet. That's something the judge has to decide on on Monday. Okay, so we will be back with you next week as the jury gets seated and testimony begins in the trial of Officer Geronimo Yanez. Yep. Thanks, Tracy. Go outside where it's sunny. I will try. Seventy-four Seconds is reported by John Collins and Reham Fashir and produced by me, Tracy Mumford, and Hans Buto. It's edited by Meg Martin. Follow us on Twitter at 74SecondsMPR for links to everything we talked about in this episode, like the implicit bias test or that Radio Lab episode about jury makeup. And to keep up to date on the trial, go to 74seconds.org. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. 74 Seconds is a production of Minnesota Public Radio News and American Public Media.
This is Tracy from 74 Seconds, and we wanted to let you know that our colleagues at APM Reports just launched the new season of their award-winning podcast, In the Dark. In this second season, they explore a new story with life-or-death consequences. It's the case of four people who were killed in a small town in Mississippi, and the story of why a black man on death row has been tried six times for those murders. You can listen and subscribe to In the Dark on Apple Podcasts.